When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 48 and recording on Wednesday, April 9th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRat.com. It's an after dark this week. It is. It's earlier in the week than we normally record. It's evening. I have a beer. Yeah. I feel very crazy when we do these. I still have uh, my drinks from last night in me. I can still feel them. <laughs> oh, buddy. So it's kind of, uh, <laughs> now that I'm old, you can do an after dark for about 48 hours after any kind of drinking experience. So, That's rough, anyway, Jeff. Speaking of drinking... Graduation's coming up, uh, and we're going to do a recommendation show. We had so much fun doing the Christmas holiday gift-giving recommendation that we couldn't wait a full year to do another one. So we're kind of cobbling together Mother's Day, Father's Day, graduation, and summer reading recommendations into one show. We're going to do that show in a couple weeks, um, and we're looking for people looking for recommendations for any or all of those things. Shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know who you're shopping for, what they like. Maybe you're shopping for yourself, what you totally like. Totally legit to do that. It doesn't even have to be related to any of these things. Nope. Um, if it is, great. Um, ask for a couple different things, and we'll pick out um, the ones that we'll, we'll cover as many as we can. We really enjoy it, and we hope you enjoy it too. Um, the other thing we want to mention is the quarterly box that we do. Book Riot does every quarter. That's why it's called quarterly. That's how adjectives work. That is how that works. Uh, do you want to say something more about that? Uh, sure. So once every three months, you get what one of our readers calls Book Nerd Christmas uh, delivered right to your door. It's uh, for 50 bucks a quarter. It's a box of at least one book and a bunch of bookish stuff. Uh, if you read bookriot.com, you probably know the book fetish series, but uh, stuff like coffee mugs with bookish things on them, posters, exclusive uh, content that you get from authors that you couldn't get anywhere else. Um, our very first box featured Lexicon by Max Berry, and each book had 10 handwritten post-it notes with insider info and like insights from him uh, about things in the book. Um, really unique, fun stuff. So uh, it's I think it's really fun. I subscribe to the box, even though I'm the one who puts it all together. <laughs> like, I know what's coming on My Christmas dad morning. subscribes to it and has a good time with it. So oh, does he? That's I, yeah, great. Yeah, he does. He really that. enjoys it. Um, it's very cool. So you can go to quarterly.co slash products and you'll see the Book Riot logo there. Uh, click to sign up. The next box will be shipped out in early June. So you have until the end of May to subscribe, but the sooner the better for our planning purposes. That's right. Uh, and you're uh, you know, guaranteed to be rewarded for being an adventurous reader. We don't make any promises about the kinds of books that will be included other than these are books that we love and that we think our readers uh, who are willing to you know try out some things that they maybe haven't read before will love 
as well. So give that a shot if it sounds good to you. All right. So let's do our first sponsor. This one's you. Yeah. Um, Audible is back. Uh, Audible, Audible, if you are not familiar or you haven't heard the show before, uh, is an app for accessing audiobooks. Uh, They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, basically every category imaginable. Um, If you can think of it, it's on Audible. And likely if it's a title that you've heard of recently in book media, you could also get it uh, as an audiobook. The app is free. They work on iPhones, Android phones, Windows phones, also Kindle Fires, 500 different MP3 players. And unlike with a streaming or a rental service, uh, you own the books. Uh, You pay a monthly fee and then you download your audiobooks and they stay in your Audible account forever, and you can go back to them if you, if you want to, which I have done uh, multiple times for a, for a one book. Uh, you get a library where that you can access. They also have this cool feature called Whisper Sync, which I have not tried out yet. Um, but if you use a Kindle or the Amazon Kindle app, and you get the Kindle book and the audio book, you can uh, activate Whisper Sync, and it syncs up your reading experience. So like you could read one chapter on your Kindle or your Kindle app and then pick up at the next chapter when you turn on your Audible device and it would just do it automatically, which makes me feel like I live in the future. And that's pretty cool. Uh, There's chapter navigation, annotated bookmarks. You can put it in sleep mode so it turns off after a certain amount of time. Um, There's a button-free mode, and you can control how quickly or how slowly the narration moves. Like if you want to hear things go faster, you can speed it up. Uh, We have a cool offer for uh, Book Riot listeners today. If you haven't tried Audible, you get a 30-day free trial membership by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. That'll include a free download of any audiobook that you want to try and if you decide that you don't like the book you choose, you don't have to sweat it. You can exchange any book that you aren't happy with for any other title, anytime, no questions asked. And that's not just for the trial run. That's for all Audible customers. Um, it's one of my favorite things. I didn't know that I was going to become an audiobook person. Yeah, we talked in the last show that uh, audiobooks are now a $1.6 billion annual market. <sighs> and uh, I think I might be up to half audiobook. Oh, in, really? in my consumption. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Um, and I'm just, I do a lot of my reading, listening on the train. Mm. Uh, and, you know, when I'm commuting in the morning, there's not often a seat and it's hard to read standing up on the train. But you know what's not hard? My headphones. Yep. Um, when I'm in the car, I can plug my phone into the stereo of the car and listen. When I'm doing the dishes, when I'm walking to go get my son from uh, daycare, when I'm shopping, you know, just a million places where you can fill in the time uh, that I don't have and don't spend sitting down to read and unitasking in that way. Mm-hmm. But this is allows me, there's a lot, there's actually a lot of time I have in my life um, that audiobooks can provide my reading time for. It, it's great. It really is great. And I think one thing that you and I both do with audiobooks is we gravitate towards books that we might not yeah, have wanted to non-fiction spend. Nonfiction for me. Yeah, stuff we might not have wanted to spend our sit-down reading time with, but it's somehow the experience is different. I really love um, mm-hmm. sort of like humorous memoirs uh, and nonfiction in particular when there's a great narrator. Uh, right now, I'm listening to Aisha Tyler's memoir, which is called Self Inflicted Wounds. Uh, she's an actress and a comedian uh, in the 90s, which, you know, my favorite. She was uh, on 
Love Line with Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla when it was a show on MTV. Now she voices Lana on Archer, uh, which is great. So she's a great reader for this memoir, but it's about all of the like sort of crazy experiences that she Mm -hmm. had as a kid and then as a a young woman and now as a professional adult um, taking risks and sort of, you know, how if you seek out risk and failure um, and welcome those things in your life, that's how you become awesome. And it's really funny uh, and down to earth. She's, she's a great narrator for her own story and I'm enjoying that. So if, if that sounds up your alley, I I think I stumbled on that um, looking at other books that I had liked in audible, but that Mm. I hadn't done on audio. Like I loved Mindy Kaling's memoir, Is Everybody Hanging Out Without Me? Um, and Tina Fey's memoir, Bossy Pants. And when I looked mm-hmm. those up, Audible's algorithm was like, hey, you might like Aisha Tyler. And Audible was right. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, I'm really digging it. So if this sounds good to you, if you haven't tried out Audible and you think now is the time, you have sort of a risk-free way to do it at audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. That activates your 30-day free trial. It gets you the free audiobook membership and it lets them know that you came from us so it supports the show. Ready to um, do this? Uh, yeah, you know, let's get the annoying one out of the way. <laughs> And there's a lot of annoying things about this. Um, and let me just say off the top that I'm biased because I don't want this to be true. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Sure. Um, that th- this is a story in the Washington Post. It says, serious reading takes a hit from online scanning and skimming researchers say. So let me just say, I do not want it to be true that online reading makes your ability to read closely and carefully worse. But let me put that to the side for a second and note that there is no research in this. Right. A researcher well, saying me, it doesn't mean it's yeah. supported by research. There is one research uh, piece that's cited from 2012, um, an Israeli study about engineering students and the time to complete a task um, when you get the instruction on screen versus print. Um, we could talk a lot about, we don't get any methodology here. We know nothing. Um, so you and I are going to be frustrated by that uh, right mm-hmm. off the bat. But everything else is just speculation and supposition. Yep. Uh, it's English teachers saying my students can't read the classics. Uh, it's one anecdotal point of I was been reading online and then I went to go read a novel and I had a hard time. Yeah, it there's... was a interview with a, a, a Navy um, uh, a member of the Navy who said his went to his book club and he could remember a salient detail. It's just so <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. And it's like Clickbait crap hole. I hate it so much. It's the Washington Post. It's so bad. Which shouldn't be the clickbait crap hole. Yeah, I know. And it got passed around the bookish internet. Like, it's still getting... This was from, what, Monday? Sunday or Monday? And it's still getting passed around by people who are just now seeing it as if it's, one, anything new. And they want to believe it, right? right. Is that why people are passing... From what I can tell. I think so. Yeah. They want to believe it. uh, Because... It's is somehow there. We have this these screwed up value systems in the bookish world where a lot of people think that any way of reading that doesn't involve just you sitting down with mm-hmm. a paper book is less valuable than the paper book kind of reading. And so this is it's confirmation bias all over the place. Like I think people do want this to be true. They want to be able to say, "Oh yes, I don't like the internet, and I am right in not liking the internet because look, it's screwing up." everybody's ability to read there's you know Mm -hmm. anecdotal stuff where someone is like well i noticed that when i'm reading online you know i read like four sentences of a story before you know if it doesn't catch my interest i click over and i read something else i just skim things like 
you know, how we read the internet might be different from how we read books, but you also take your brain into reading a page on the internet, I think, in a different way than you take your brain into, I'm going to sit down now and read a story. Um, when you, like when I open a chapter in a novel um, that I'm reading, I'm not typically doing, I'm not reading the same way that I read when I read on the internet to try to figure out what's going on and is this story even worth my time or is it clickbait crap hole? Mm -hmm. I, um, I'm certainly open to the possibility that our reading habits are changing with deleterious effects on serious reading. I think that's certainly possible, even as I admit that I don't want it to be true. But there's nothing here to persuade you. Right. There's nothing to support it. There's a lot of I worry yeah, and, a lot right. of, and a lot of I fear and a lot of I think. Or and perhaps a lot of, maybe I'm this interested is what in happens possibly to yeah. me. But like asking the question of a researcher doesn't give the answers that they provide any more weight unless they're supporting those answers with actual data. Um, so this and, really should say <laughs> researchers worry right. that serious in reading might take a hit from online and they might like i guess here's my anecdata um in the kobo reading app you get stats about your the typical length of each reading session they track the times of day that you read so you can look at a graph and see like oh i didn't realize that i was spending so much time reading between eight and nine in the morning it feels mm -hmm. like i just pick up a book occasionally then but i'm actually reading a lot before breakfast or, or whatever and it also tells you how many pages you turn in an average session how many minutes it takes on average for you to finish a book or hours it takes and i know noticed, um, I've been reading in the Kobo app on my iPad for the last four months. Um, and I noticed a couple of months ago that it said that my average time spent per reading session was 13 minutes. Mm. And I was like, that's not right. Like I sit down and I read for an hour mm -hmm. or two in the evenings, but then I was like, Oh wait, no, that's right. I read a chapter and then I bounce over yes. to Twitter and I bounce and like, take a look at what's happening on Instagram. But then I come back to the book and if it weren't an ebook, I would probably be laying my paper book down and like walking to the kitchen to get a snack. Like I take those breaks. I just feel like I have longer solid mm -hmm. reading sessions. And my first experience was like, Oh God, I have to stop doing that. I have to stop reading a chapter and then going to look at Twitter. That's bad. Like it's bad to only read for 13 minutes at a time. And then I sort of stepped back and was like, well, what is bad about that? Like I'm enjoying the books that I'm reading. If I want to take a break and look at something else, there's nothing objectively bad about reading yeah. that way if i come away from the book with the same knowledge or the same you know comprehension yeah so i think i'm largely going to dismiss this and yeah. by largely i mean completely um there is one nugget of information that i hadn't seen before that i thought was interesting and that is um a study says it doesn't even cite this oh e-marketer okay fine um time spent online on desktop and mobile devices um was expected to top five hours per, per day in 2013 for American adults. Um, that's up from three hours per day in 2010. That I did find interesting. That's that a 66 percent increase in three years. Again, we could put it through the ringer, and I will just real quick. Um, so that could mean watching Netflix, right, on your computer. Mm -hmm. It so, could mean that your office went to stuff in the cloud instead right. of paper um, files. So I don't know, like, where is that time coming from? Like, where where is the time? I, I suspect a lot of it's coming from TV and movies myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
I guess some from reading novels, though the stats we've seen before suggest it's not dipping as much as one might think. Um, but anyway, so, you know, there's just some, it's like confirmation bias a palooza. Um, <laughs> Which for, is like the festival you don't want to go yeah, to. Yeah, well, or you do want to go to, depending on how you feel about it. Because it makes you feel good. Yeah, right. Um, so let's get out. We got, we cleansed our palate with we uh, did. that. Let's move on. What I we just, got next? I call upon the book gods to stop yeah. publishing those stories. Right. Next, we have something that I think is really, really cool. Uh, there's a Kickstarter. It's called Storium, the online storytelling game. Uh, this Kickstarter launched yesterday, aiming to raise $25,000. They met their goal yesterday. Uh, it's currently at $28,921 with 750 backers. Like That's just a really incredible mm -hmm. thing in and of itself. Um, but they say stories are part of what make us human. They're all around us from books and movies to TV and video games. Experiencing a good story can be one of life's great pleasures, but telling your own can be even more fun. And so basically they have gamified storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and with your computer, your tablet, or your smartphone, you can choose from a library of imaginary worlds to play in and tell stories in, or you can create your own. You uh, create your story's characters, you decide what happens to them, you can tell any kind of story, and they say the only limit is your imagination. Um, Chuck Wendig, who's a writer that, uh, that we both love, who's a friend of Book Riot and has been on the show, is one of the supporters here, and he says, story and game had a baby, and it's Storium. This is vital stuff, which is exactly the kind of thing Chuck would say. Uh, this is vital stuff, equal parts revolutionary and fundamental. Um, I've been watching some writer friends talk about it on Twitter, and they're talking about it not just as a fun thing to do, a cool way of using technology to tell stories, but also like a way to make it fun to put in the work on that piece that you're trying to write or on that book that you're trying to finish to finish and to share it with other people. Um, I mean, I just love seeing. It's really interesting. When books and technology meet and they create something new and cool that we couldn't have done without the technology, like this is a good antidote, I think, to yeah. the Cranky Pants story that we just read. It's kind of um, like a, a choose-your-own-adventure where the choices happen spontaneously is the easiest way for me to sort of yeah. uh, explain it in, in, uh, in language on the air. We'll drop a link into the show notes. They have a really nice three-minute video that if you're interested in seeing how it's going. Um, the goal is for the Kickstarter that they're going to build out some more worlds. So basically, they're like genres. Mm -hmm. So a couple they have, they have a cyberpunk, classic fantasy, uh, medical drama. They want to build some more of those out. They want to add real-time play, parallel storytelling. So you could like take two branches of a scene at the same time and then decide which of them to take. Um, and improve support for mobile devices. Yeah, there's some cool writers involved. The backer prizes are great. Uh, so if this sounds interesting, definitely you know check out the link uh, in the show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. Click over. You can watch the video that they've made that explains Storium a little bit uh, more succinctly and uh, eloquently than we have succeeded <laughs> in, right, doing, yeah. in doing here. But um, this, to me, is a great concrete reminder of even if the way that we are reading is changing somehow, mm -hmm. um, even if we are spending five hours a day on average online, which I mean, I work online, so I yeah, spend more than oh, that. Like, that's definitely true. <laughs> We're online I, right now. Right. I would hate to have to calculate how many hours oh, per boy. day I spend on the internet in some fashion, if that's considered to be 
the higher it goes, the worse it it is. <laughs> uh, but you could be spending five hours a day on story and writing and telling stories and interacting with other people who love stories as well. Um, very cool. It's very I give cool. this two thumbs up and no cranky pants, frowny faces. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a, a service website that's been out for a while that we just stumbled across this week. Mm. Uh, it's called Biblonasium, which I don't love the the, the name, but we'll, we can maybe come back to well, that. Well, it's not a book app if you don't involve book or I know. biblio or right. shelf or something. <laughs> right. And it's basically Goodreads for kids. Mm -hmm. So kids can enter in their comic book, their, their novel, their whatever they want, um, and keep track of it and share it with friends and rate it. And it just add this week, it burbled up into the news because it added the ability for kids to review the books they read, mm -hmm. which I'm a little surprised it didn't have before, but well, you know, that I, I, I can see some reasons maybe that wasn't the best. I, they were worried sure. about it for all the reasons everyone's worried about crowdsourced reviews and user generated reviews. Um, but I didn't know that Bibliognasium was a thing at all. Uh, I was looking at the website a little bit. It looks pretty slick. Um, it does. You need, of course, uh, and understandably, a parent to help sign the kids up. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's, let's see, I'm trying, I saw how many users they had. Did you happen to see? I think they're in the tens of thousands of users at least. Um, it's aimed at kids ages 6 through 13, which makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be something that those of you out there with kids want to use. Yeah, uh, you and can see how they how it works. You can create a virtual bookshelf there, write reviews, see how your reading compares to your friends, uh, all that stuff that adult readers do, you know, passionately and frequently on Goodreads and library thing, and all those other bajillion um, yeah. book <laughs> book social networking and cataloging websites. Uh, the piece that we uh, founded on is from the Melville House blog, and they happily conclude that this is not a thing that is bad for capital L literature. These kids are starting to understand how we talk about books uh, in contemporary culture and getting some of those skills uh, down pat. And there are some great examples in the piece mm -hmm. as well. I think I would have loved this. Like, Yeah, my, I don't think by thir before 13. I don't know, maybe. Uh, I think like my eight-year-old Nancy Drew self would have yeah. just thought this was the coolest thing ever. I think if I'm a kid right now and I'm reading a lot of ebooks this gives me a place to like look at them because I, re I do remember liking to have, you know, admiring my own bookshelf when I was mm. a kid of that age. And if you're doing a lot of ebooks, which a lot of kids are, you don't get that kind of browse and look at your shelf. It's like kind of hard to do, especially if you're reading across devices and platforms. And um, so this place you can enter in, you get the, you can get the title kind of like on Goodreads, you can see your mm -hmm. shelf and at a glance scroll right. through the things you've read yeah. and jot down some memories. Another happy thing that, that is noted at the bottom of this piece is that all these kids who are actively using Biblionasium are going to grow up to become, hopefully will grow up to become adult reviewers and mm -hmm. adult readers. Um, and it, it seems to me, you know, I don't know that we have like longitudinal data about that, but no. it seems to me that if you're the kind of a kid who's really embedded in a book social networking site where you're writing about what you're reading when you're eight to 13, like you are pretty likely to continue to be a reader, if I had mm -hmm. to guess, uh, and, you know, to want to talk about your reading with other people, be it online or in person. And that's one more, like, maybe the sky is not actually falling. There are kids who use a book social networking site, and they use it so much and so actively that when they clamored to be able to write reviews, the site had to respond. Yeah. Very um, cool. Very cool. Uh, book track. We're doing a lot of 
new cool tech stuff. That's kind of in our wheelhouse, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, Booktrack, I've heard, I had read about before, and it is a service that lets you create soundtracks to go along with the book you're reading. Anything from ambient noise to mood music that is a you know resonates with what's going on in the book to a whole variety of things. Um, and they just took on a three million round of uh, venture capital funding and basically to extend to the classroom because there's been some interesting studies that suggest that if you read with a appropriate soundtrack, that the time you spend reading goes up and your comprehension goes up as well. So it's kind of like a secondary reinforcement of what's going on. Um, a, a study was recorded with students with reading difficulties that was especially interesting. That They had outsized gains to, with the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. This group had an 18% higher comprehension and a 35% high, higher satisfaction. So not only did they get more out of it, but they enjoyed it more. Um, That's so great. this was really interesting. I haven't messed around with this at all. Oh, I have. You have. So yeah. can you tell me more about like, what you do and sure. how does it work? Uh, I didn't, I haven't messed around with the part where you create the, your own soundtrack, uh, yeah. but they do have, I watched some of the how to videos at booktrack.com and it looks like it's relatively simple to, you know, bring in the music or to, to, to select tracks and then sync them up, uh, with what you're reading. But they also have some that you can try for free and it's right there on the homepage. So I tried it out for like 20 minutes this afternoon with Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Uh, I think they have like 10 or 15 titles, public domain stuff. Um, and there's sort of a classical music thing, but um, I was doing it on my laptop. And so a screen pops up with the book's text and there is a little line that marks uh, basically the speed. It's an arrow that moves from one line of text down the page to the next to sort of like show you where you should be in your reading to be in the right place with the yeah, soundtrack. I wondered about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it bounced down pretty quickly through the cast of characters. And then when I got to the opening scene where there's uh, two characters like walking into a room or into an area together, you can hear the classical music has sort of like shuffling feet, a little ambient noise that did help me picture what that would have looked like. I thought Shakespeare was a good place to start mm-hmm. with testing this out because it's, uh, for me at least, it's more difficult to build that scenery in my head for a play um, than it is for a novel where you're getting mm. the full mm-hmm. world building. Um, it was interesting. I It sort of stressed me out, like reading at my own pace and seeing the arrow move around or like I was thinking about, am I reading at the right pace to be where the music wants me to be to like comprehend this? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that properly. experience where you're like, trying to sing along to something that's like the bouncing ball lyrics mm-hmm. and like watching the ball, even if you know the song really well, it kind of like catches you up from uh, being able to follow along. I-, I can imagine how that would be difficult. I wonder if at some point they can do like eye, rec- you know, eye movement tracking so that you don't have to do something yeah. like that. It'll keep up with that. That would be really cool. And I guess that's probably for the ones that are strategically built for things right like like for the tester or i guess maybe for the classroom ones for the music to have its optimal efficacy you would need to read at the right pace so that you were getting the right sounds at the right times um but i i guess when you upload your own soundtrack you know it you just sort of read and and listen Mm -hmm. it doesn't try to match it up but i think it's a really cool idea i've definitely had the experience of like i read with music on as do i and 
Have you had it happen where like if you're later, you're in the car or something and the same song that was on while you were reading comes on and it triggered for me, mm. it, sometimes it triggers like, oh, the last time that I heard this song, I was sitting on my couch and I had a beer and I was reading this book at that certain part. Oh, no. When I read, I have like a standard reading mix. So it's ah. kind of all the same. Uh, oh, now I want to see that list. Oh, it's it's just cello concertos. <laughs> it's not that interesting. <laughs> all, all novels sound like a uh, Bach cello concerto to me. Uh. Um, so that's book track. Yeah, booktrack.com. More more tech stuff. Yeah, there's so much tech stuff. This one is just sort of a cool, an interesting tool that I came across. I think I first saw a story about it at themarysue.com today, but it's called Gender Remixer. And you can go to genderremixer.com. And this fits in with the the stories that we've been talking about for the last couple months about um, books that are marketed um, specifically to girls and specifically to boys and the problems uh, that that we have and that a lot of parents are having uh, with that happening. So you can go to Gender Remixer and it gives you um, options to see audio and video from commercials, from TV commercials for products marketed to boys and products marketed to girls. And you can drag them over and sort of remix. So you can drag over like the video from a boy's Lego set and then overlay it with the audio from a girl's like (laughs) Bratz dolls commercial. Wow. It freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> but it makes the point. Um, Are Bratz dolls like the worst thing ever? I've seen I, them in Target and I, well, I don't them, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I haven't thought about it that much, but I, I look at them and I was like, whoa. I personally find them terrifying. Yeah, okay, good. Well, I mean, that makes two of us. <laughs> and we're reasonable people, right? I, mean, I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting, like the boys, ones that they have here, it's like, Lego stuff and trucks. And I think there's a video game and the girls, uh, all of the products are babies or animals. And then there's one, like something, a little girl, like a Jeep toy. (laughs) Um, But if you just find this kind of thing interesting, maybe if you've been skeptical about what we've been saying about uh, gendered advertising of products for boys and girls, like it's kind of hard to ignore this when you see uh, like a, a Lego plane flying towards a giant flaming mountain and it's overlaid with like this, the sounds of little kids skipping and giggling and talking about taking care of your baby, mm-hmm. um, the messages that we send to kids in marketing. So not directly book related, but related to some of the issues that we've been talking about. And that's gender remixer dot com um create a mashup freak yourself out let us know what it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah um Scrupulp, uh is another publishing startup and there's just a uh, the company itself is trying to basically help self-published authors get discovered um, one thing they do is you can get free books for honest reviews though it doesn't really say you know how they know it's honest in an Amazon review isn't, I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, the thing I'm interested in is their pricing model, or at least one of their pricing model options, if you publish a book with them. And they don't have a name for it. But there's this option where you can gradually increase the price of your book, as more people buy it. So for example, you could start it at zero dollars. Mm-hmm. And then once it's been downloaded 25 times, it goes up to 99 cents. And then if it's been down, you know, you can, you can, you have sliders, how many for how Mm -hmm. much after there. So it gives you the option of using the free books as publicity, but it doesn't have to be free, free forever. Uh, Or, and it's not just 
kind of binary, you're going to charge for it, you're not going to charge for it. So if something gets super popular, you're not wed to 99 cents forever. You could raise up to 499 I don't, I don't know what would make sense. But you're, there's elasticity in the pricing. That's something that publishing is just now, uh, traditional publishing, the big five and some of the, the larger independents, are messing with more on like a sale mm-hmm. um, model. I wouldn't be surprised if some cagey, desperate, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes those things uh, overlap or uh, there's a Venn diagram. Wiley. Yeah, Wiley. That's right. That's cagey and desperate. Uh, tries this with a debut novel that they're, they really think there's something to, but they mm-hmm. don't have a big marketing budget or much PR hope because no one knows about it. But they could try giving, you know, you could imagine like it's, FSG, if they had this a debut novelist that they were really interested in, but they were trying to draw, they didn't know how to market it or they didn't have the budget or like most literary fiction debut novelists just don't sell. Or like short story collections, yeah, or that's essay an collections. Excellent, yeah. Ex- excellent point um, to say, we're going to give it out to free for the first 500 people. Right. And after that, we'll charge two bucks for it. And you I get think- some good reads, reviews, you get people tweeting about it. Um, I don't know. I think there might be something there. I don't yeah. know there's something there, but there might be something. It's really interesting. I think it's smart and it's it turns the model that traditional publishers use with ebook pricing right on its head because when a like when a new book is out freshly out in hardcover and the ebook comes out the same day, it's like you could pay 25.99 for the hardcover or probably 12.99 for the ebook like they're they're still mm-hmm. pretty expensive and then they wait a while and then to drum up interest again maybe right before the paperback release publishers might drop the price for a day or a week to like 199 or 299 something that'll get it onto those ebook deal newsletters and onto people's radar um, and that drives up interest in sales and it sort of games it makes Amazon's, the kindles bestseller list right, or something it, like it, that it games amazon's algorithm that you got this surge in interest um and there's been a there's been talk from self-published authors for a long time that it's really expensive to do the kind of marketing that you have to do to have a successful self-published book and it becomes really difficult to just sell you have, you have to sell a ton of books at oh. 99 cents or a dollar 99 each um for publishing your book to become a job or a, a, a career that can support you in any way. So I like it that it's basically, it's like no risk to start, you know, like you, you give the book away for free at the beginning, but if you become a big hit, you can capitalize on becoming a big hit and make more money off of your book and charge more for it when readers are willing to pay the more for mm-hmm. it. But the very first readers who take that risk, um, who read the book by the person they've never heard of before can be rewarded for their adventuresomeness, basically. Right. Like, get it for free or for a dollar. And if you uh, if you want to be a reader who waits around and sees what other people say about the book or make sure it becomes established before you try it, then you pay for waiting. Mm-hmm. And, and we, do really know, we do know that if a book gets some steam behind it, people will pay for it. Yeah. If they have confidence that they're going to like it or they know that a lot of people already like it, mm-hmm. they'll pay 10 bucks, 15 bucks for it. Like it happens all the time. It happens with 50 shades of gray, it happens with the help, it happens game of three. You know, if if there's enough sort of cultural momentum behind a book, price is not really an option, uh, not an obstacle for most people. Right. It's an obstacle when it's a debut novelist or a, a novel by someone you've never heard of before. And it's fourteen ninety nine for the ebook. 
I mean, it once you start thinking about that way, it's like that is a that's a lot of friction to introduce into the system. And this way, you reward people that take chances, mm -hmm. um, and they provide the foundation for word of mouth. I guess I don't really know how we even talk about this. Um, so that'll be interesting. I, it's not. I don't know that if Screw Pulp has success with this, it means anything for the wider world of publishing because it is a lot of self-published authors mm -hmm. and readers who read self-published authors. And I don't know that they have a lot of the same behaviors and dynamics in the wider publishing world. They may or may not. I just don't know. I think there's reasons to suspect that they don't. Um, but as a model, I think it's something if I ran an imprint and I had a book by someone with no name recognition and maybe a book that was even kind of hard to explain, that might be also something that's hard mm -hmm. to do in a pitch or a, a blurb. Yeah, I might also, try something like this. That might make publishers more likely to even take those books on. Like mm -hmm. it's if you, if you have a novel that you have no name, the novel is difficult to sum up somehow, and the publisher doesn't have a budget to put behind it, there's a really good chance that you don't have a publisher. Right. Um, and this would also make it possible if publishers wanted to try that to take on some of the books that they thought were going to be more difficult to sell, but to experiment with how they might sell those books mm -hmm. better rather than just turning them down. I think um, you might also tap into, we use the word in tech early adopters, there must be some word for readers, the, the experimental, the leading edge, the people... If you're listening to the show, you probably fall into this category. I think early adopters still apply. Still applies for any given book. Like you hear about something earlier than other people, maybe even before it's out. Mm -hmm. um, it could, you know, it also could serve as a substitute for review copies. Sure. Like what if the first thousand downloads were free? And so people, bloggers and reviewers and interested editorial people or whatever that essentially became their review. I don't know. There, yeah, there's I mean, something I can't here. even think about how much money publishers spend printing up review copies. That, yeah, well, that's a separate insider yeah. baseball. I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, but no <laughs> It's a money-saving option, yeah, too. Right, here. Right. Um, and there, there's a note here that Screwpulp allows writers to keep 75% of their mm. sales, which is better than Amazon's 40 to 70%. Yeah, I don't know um, if that's Screwpulp exclusive or yeah, not. Yeah, but, right. I was going to say that as yeah. well. That I don't know if you have to promise that Screwpulp is the only place you sell your book, but... I don't know, man. If November rolls around and you write a novel for NaNoWriMo and you think it's good, but you don't have an agent or a publisher and you want to try something, mm -hmm. I think you could you could do a lot worse than experimenting. Yeah, I mean, with this. For, I'm, I'm saying for midlist literary fiction where the advance is three thousand dollars and selling a thousand copies is not bad. You know, maybe you maybe you swing for the fences a little bit, and if you mm -hmm. if you don't sell any copies, well, you're out three thousand dollars. Right. What you probably were out anyway. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe I'm being uh, overly uh, simplistic. Well, overly simplistic is redundant. Maybe I'm being simplistic, but um, I feel like there's a strategy. It may not be sustainable and change the world, but it's an option for different kinds of books in different situations. Yeah. Okay. Even and even if oh, it's not. It, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say even no, if it's no, not no. change the world it's that we like we live in a book landscape now where there are all of these mm -hmm. options and so even if it doesn't change the overall world or shift the way that publishing does things it's one more way for writers to put their book in the world it's one more way for readers to find new books to read and to um to make buying those books affordable to them it rewards readers for taking risks which you know publishers are not really great at for all of the reasons that, yeah. <laughs> that you just listed. Um, it's 
It's great. This is what I'm going to put my future girl. (laughs) Well, I also think the opposite is something that publishing maybe should do more of. And I was thinking, I remember first thinking about this around the time the last Harry Potter book came out. And I think the cover price was $27.95, if I remember right. And I thought to myself, why aren't they charging 35 bucks for this? Mm-hmm. For the really high demand, like guaranteed yeah, success like, popular why titles? Not? Why don't they? I also, I, I've thought this about movie theaters. Why aren't opening night tickets 50% more? Mm. If you really, really want People, those. Or, like, or opening night tickets for, say, um, uh, what's the next surefire? Avengers 2, let's just say, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to sell out Thursday night and Friday oh, yeah, night. yeah, for sure. So charge 50% more. Yeah, I think I said on a show like a, a while back when we were talking about bundling that yeah. I would happily pay like $5 over the hardcover cover price if I could get the ebook mm-hmm. early <laughs> and then they would right. send me the paper book when it came out or like just pay for extra access if I just bought the ebook but I could pay an uh, an additional fee to get it you know, three or four days before everybody else did. I would happily pay for early access to like the new Toni Morrison. Well, you and I talked about before that one thing, especially for authors that have like a a hardcore following, I don't know how you would identify them, but let's say that you could, you know, you and I, if the new Morrison novel came out tomorrow and it was 50 bucks hardcover, I mean, Uh, we would pay it. Yeah, there's just I'm I'm just gonna buy the new Toni Morrison yeah, novel no right. matter what. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. There's some... I think it's I think you're onto something though. Like if Suzanne Collins announced a fourth Hunger Games <laughs> right. book that like shifted and it was the whole thing from Gail's perspective, what he was doing while they were off fighting the Hunger Games or whatever it was, like and they started doing pre orders for it. If you had to pay extra to get your book either a week early, you know, before the technical release date or to get the book in the first week or whatever, mm-hmm. tons of people would do it, especially with the internet. Like, yeah. you know, if you want to avoid the spoilers or be on the inside and therefore not care that people are posting spoilers, then it's worth it to some readers for that, like that extra access or early early access to a thing. There is probably some economic study about this or related to this that would disprove my theory and that people <laughs> would revolt. And, you know, we're not economists. I know you're. that's going to come as a shock to everyone. Um, but I also know that publishing also does things for reasons that don't have any logical basis whatsoever. So <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to bet that this hasn't really been thought about and it's more a habit of tradition than anything else. Right, yeah. I hope that there's a study somewhere that shows that this wouldn't work with publishing, but my suspicion would be that... (laughs) (laughs) Not even suspicion. I would say my educated guess based on years of experience (laughs) with publishing would be that if they're not doing this, the reasons that they would give not to are things more along the lines of it just doesn't... You know, we well, we do the things that feel like they work, and we just haven't done that before, as if we haven't done that before as a reason not to do it (laughs) now. Um, Like you said, tradition uh, that's not backed up. So I don't know if you are an economist or you know of one of these reasons or a study that would that would make our conjecture. uh, You know what I've decided, Chinsky. That did you ever see the second Bill and Ted movie? Bogus yes. journey. It's been a while, man. You yes. know, you know how they get in the phone booth, like you know what, we're gonna win this thing, so we're gonna go in the booth and go, 
into the into the future I'm so and learn about where this might and be learn going. how to be awesome at guitar and then yeah. come back and win this. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do is we're going to get in the b- booth and spend five years learning cognitive psychology <laughs> and economics and then come back <laughs> and then come back as experts in both of those things. It feels like we run into like cognitive psychology and economic issues a lot. It does. And we just, I think it'd just be super useful if we, or maybe you could do cognitive psychology and I'll do economics. That's a, it's a good plan. I just saw today that the, I mean, this is not on the agenda. It's random news, but the guys that wrote the Freakonomics books have a new book out called How to Think Like a Freak. Oh, I like, like that already. That's sort of how, for the layman, how to do that kind of critical thinking about mm. correlation and causation and uh, how to take apart studies that you see in the media, that kind of thing, and, and decide. So I will I will happily jump in the phone booth because <laughs> only if my future girl jetpack fits in it. Uh, well, and- you're in a time traveling phone booth. <laughs> I think you can leave the jetpack. I mean, I don't want to come down hard on you, but you know Fine. what? Fine, whatever. You're, you're, you already got your carry on. I'll learn it, or I could just download Clive Thompson and Stephen no, Dubner straight into my brain. Bad. Let's do that. Thinking fast and slow. Um, we can throw right. that in. Thinking there. fast and slow. All right, let's talk about an actual book. So enough of this technology rubbish. <laughs> Technology and books is our Venn diagram. Yeah. Though. Okay. Let's start with um, you know the the probably the most significant piece of author actual book news this week was the passing of um, Peter Matheson, who was a novelist, um, a nonfiction writer, an essayist, and maybe the most interesting man in the world. Did you read his obit? Have you written? Do you know anything about I him? I don't know anything about him, and I'm oh good. Then I can ashamed tell you. to say that no, I didn't no, you, even read you're the gonna Obed. you're gonna like this. I think um, he passed away at the age of 86 from leukemia. He is the only writer to have won the National Book Award in both fiction and nonfiction. So huh. that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he was part of a mid sort of the mid 70s after World War II literary New Yorker set. He was friends with Styron and James Jones, Vonnegut and Doctorow, who kind of moved between Long Island and Manhattan um, and formed the, the literary set of that day. I really want someone to write a, a book about this set. That is the gang you want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, in the early 50s, he was in Paris and with some of his expat friends founded the Paris Review. He was childhood friends with George Plimpton, who became the editor. Turns out... Founding the Paris Review to be in Paris was a cover for him to be a spy for the CIA. What? Yes. Yes. And only years (laughs) later did uh, Mr. Plimpton even find out that that was the truth. Um, And he was spying spying on Americans in France. That's the other part. I can't talk yet. (laughs) Yeah. So he went to Asia, Australia, South America, Africa. One of the great travel writers, Stephen Jay Gould, was a huge fan, called him the last great lyrical travel and nature writer. Um, The best book I've read by him is called The Snow Leopard. And it's about he had a huge loss in his life, and he went to the Himalayas on a spiritual journey. It's amazing. He also wrote a, another amazing nonfiction book called Men's Lives about the disappearance of the Long Island fishing economics and the men who were fishermen and their vanishing way of life. Um, unbelievable. Probably his most famous book, because it was made into a movie, was at Play in the Fields of the Lord, um, which is about the interaction between missionaries and the, the local population hmm. um, that became a really stunning Movie. I read the book after I saw the. the I find movie. that title to be very appealing. It's a. It's. It's. You like. Well, you like cults. You don't really like missionaries as much, uh, for reading material. 
Um, he has a new book out this week. I, that's the other weird thing. In Paradise, his last novel huh. came out, is out now. As you hear the show, it'll be out. That's a good trick for book sales. Yeah, and his last book was called Shadow Country, and it won the National Book Award in 2008. And it was a revision reworking of his Watson trilogy, all put together. Um, and it's about race and environmental issues and power and capital. It's an epic um, it's set in the marshes of Southwest Florida, and there's murder, and, you know, I, I say, think Pelican Brief plus, like, Grapes of Wrath kind mm. of thing in there. Okay. Oh, that's not bad, actually, now that I say that. Um, so, a titan, but underrated somehow at the same time. So, that's Peter Matheson, um, who passed away this week at the age of 86. A really interesting guy. Um, he was a child of wealth. And it bothered him his whole life. Hmm. Um, and so where would a person who hasn't read him start? You knew you had to know that was coming. You know, I should have thought about this before. I think the snow leopard. Mm. Um, yeah, I haven't read the new one. I probably will eventually. Who knows when? 30, 30 books, mostly <sighs> nonfiction and short stories. Uh, but he he thought That's of himself a career, as man. he thought of himself as a fiction writer. Interesting, even though he did hmm. it the last. I, I think my, myself, I like the nonfiction better than the fiction, which is saying something because you're not much of a nonfiction yeah, reader. No, I, I not as much. But men's lives. That's also that's dying ways of masculine. I mean, that's up. That's in my way. Yeah, that too. is. So anyway, that's Peter Matheson. Um, check him out if you haven't, um, or don't if you don't want to. That's fine too. Do you think that like? Toni Morrison is also secretly a spy. Or well, was. she doesn't get out much to be a spy. Well, not uh, anymore, but, you know, she did. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, is, in the list of my, on the list of novelists that, that could be spies, I don't think Matheson is way up there for me. Uh, you know who I'm taking? I'm, well, he's not a novelist. I'm taking John Krakauer. Oh, yeah. That guy's all over the place. I would take James Salter because also oh, like, yeah, globetrotting good. travel writing. Yeah, that's a good mysterious. one. And he's mysterious. I would believe it. And now I would really like someone to make a comic book about a bunch of like mid-century, <laughs> mid-20th century writers who are secretly spies. Yeah, I want someone. I don't, I don't, I don't know this um, literary history as well. It wasn't my specialty in grad school of seven, like 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s New York um, literary world. But I would like a big, you know, kind of like, what was the um, the metaphysical club? Wasn't that the Menand? Um, oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, like something like that of this generation. Because they really did, they formed the Paris Review. They were heavily involved in the New Yorker and the New York Times Book Review. And all of that, like, Upper West Side romantic stuff about New York mm -hmm. comes out of this. And, you know, a lot of it is overblown and there's a lot of problems, but there's some truth to it as well. So that's Peter Matheson. Um... Kazuo Guru has a new novel coming out, coming out in 2015. So we got a while. Right, his so last, next year. His last uh, spring of 2015. His last novel was Never Let Me Go, which was made into a movie. Mm -hmm. Super creepy, awesome book. I really and, love that book. Yeah, The Remains of the Day, which was also made into yeah. a great movie. Uh, Howard's End. I'm sorry, no, Remains of the Day. What's the other? Howard's End is you know, Howard's Forster. End is Forster. Forster. What's the other one? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's. I know that's a, a novelist a lot of people love. I thought I would just mention it real quick. It's called The Buried Giant. I know nothing about it. There it is. Yeah, they're not really saying anything else about it. Faber and Faber, spring yep. 2015. Right. Um, let's see. What Something else to look have? for next March. Something to look for this fall. If you are a Pillars of the Earth fan, Ken Follett is publishing 
a sequel to Pillars of the Earth because it wasn't long enough. Uh, <laughs> you know, I always said that I wish that was thing was about 900 pages longer than it was. So much to everyone's delight, there will be a sequel. In 2017? Um, Is that right? Yes. What did I say? 27, yeah, 2017. I don't think you said anything, so oh, I was oh, just oh, looking. Okay, yeah. So um, nine years apart, I guess it will be. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 1989 was Pillars of the Earth. Um, I guess. Oh, they acquired three new novels. Yeah, That's we're what getting it is. confused here. Okay. We're getting confused Pan McMillan here. acquired three new novels from Ken Follett, including a sequel to The Pillars of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And th- those three will be published over nine years, beginning in 2017. Okay. So from 2017 to 2026, which holy crap feels like the future. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. 2020, wow. like we're talking about a book that's going to come out in 2026. That's just insane. Uh, and one of them will be a, a Pillars of the Earth. Yeah. Sequel. Right. Um, he has a book coming out this fall with a different imprint called Edge of Eternity. Um, so, you know, I guess um, we're going to build another cathedral. You know, I, I don't. I don't remember the end well enough to know where where it would go with there. I could never. I never motivated to oh, read yeah. that one. Um, but I've heard it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it's it's an experience. Like I didn't love it, but it is certainly an experience. That's for sure. Okay, so we're almost to the end of last year's award season. It feels like this has been dragging. We're going to get the Pulitzer Prize any day. I just realized the Pulitzer oh, Prize yeah. in fiction is going to come out any day now. Um, but I guess the one that the last one will be the awarding of the Bailey's Women's Prize, which used to be the Orange Prize, mm-hmm. which is the premier right prize for women's fiction i can't Indeed. think of one yes and the shortlist came out this week and it's a fine fine shortlist i would say yes it is things we've talked about on this show before um americana the goldfinch the lowland mm-hmm. those are all on there but also on the list were our um, books by Imer mcbride audrey mcgee and hannah kent um it's a kind of a long shortlist. Six seems like a lot for a shortlist to me. Hmm. Um, but uh, that's coming out. There'll be a link to the show notes if you want to find uh, uh, out all about those books. Do you know anything about the McGee or the... Um, I know Burial writes a little bit about that one, but I don't know nothing about the Imer McBride or the Audrey McGee. I've heard that Imer McBride, her book is A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Faber and Faber published it in the U.S. I've heard great things about that book, um, but that's all I know. I don't know what it's about. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what makes it great. It, I just There's like a bell going off in my brain that's like, uh, some people said nice things about that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I paid attention when they said them, but that's all I've got there. Um, Tart was shortlisted for The Little Friend in 2003 when it was still the Orange Prize. Um, yeah. So, uh, There's good stuff the there good for stuff, sure. That's a heck of a list. A reliably great list, mm-hmm. the short yeah, list. Yeah, they do the, have a consistently good list. Even though the name changes and uh, it's hard to keep track when the name of the prize is um, up for grabs every now and again. But all right. Sponsor time, man. Sponsor time. Let's talk about Oyster. Let's. Unlimited ebooks for 10 bucks a month. That's it. I mean, what else do you want me to say? <laughs> Over 200,000 books um, for you to choose from. iPad, I've, iPad, iPhone right now, Android app coming later. What is it? Well, it's, 
it's think I like it. It is the Netflix for books. That's what it is. That's the easiest way to think about it. You pay a monthly subscription subscription, and it's all you can eat eBooks from their catalog. So they, they were the first unlimited eBook subscription model um, to be available to the public with someone, one of the big five publishers and HarperCollins got on board. And there's a whole bunch of HarperCollins titles, but they also have books from Houghton Mifflin, Melville House, Other Press, Perseus. They just signed a deal with Smash Smashwords. They've got Verso titles. Plenty of books for you Tons. to find. So many. Um, but that's not, that's not, that's half of the equation for Oyster for me. The other thing is that it's got a beautiful UI, probably my favorite digital mm-hmm. reading experience. And that includes all the dedicated apps from all the big retailers you can throw in iTunes, Kobo, Amazon, throw them all in a pile because if I have my choice, um, I'm choosing Oyster. So it's it's beautiful. It's easy. You can right now, if you go to, let's see, I just lost the URL, oysterbooks.com slash bookwrite, you can try a free 30-day trial. Uh, I, if you have an iPad or an iPhone and you haven't tried Oyster yet, you really should because having all you can e-books does a couple of interesting things to how you try books. We're talking before about price friction, and this really takes it away because essentially once you've paid the money, everything has the sort of de facto effect of being free to try. Mm-hmm. So you can try something, read 10 pages. You know what? You don't like it. Boom. Done. Read 50 pages, 75 pages. I don't know if you're a book abandoner where you know, you're know you going to fall, but anywhere in there you can try. You don't have to have a queue. You don't, can, it's not that you can keep three out at a time, anything like that. You can be reading as many as you want at a time. You can start and stop as many ones you time. You can finish as many in a month um, as there's you can really, get to. Yeah, there's no limit. So there's all-in-one reading experience. You, got, you can customize the typography. Um, you can, you know, you can do a lot of different things. They're helping with some discovery. Um, there's editorial sets. One from us is coming out soon where we've picked some of the books that are available on Oyster that we like. They do a really nice job with related titles and genres. Um, and starting soon, as more people get online, you're going to be able to share what you're reading with other people, see what your friends are reading, other Mm -hmm. people you're reading and, um, cultivate and, uh, add your own books to the shelf that you've read so far. There's plenty of books. There's so many, like when we were, we came up with a list of 15 books between the two of us, Mm -hmm. um, that we'd recommend, like if you want to try Oyster, but you don't know where to start, or you're not sure there's going to be books for you to read. I, it was so easy for us to find books. It was so easy. I've I've been using it, and I think you have too since the since they rolled out in the fall. Um, so several months now, and I don't think that I want my reading life without Oyster. And the in-app discovery, uh, which you mentioned, is one of my favorite things. They have editorial themed sets. I think there's a new one every week or so where they take any theme you can think of and the editors select books that are available in Oyster and then explain why that book is awesome. Um, the, the top one right now, they call them spotlights. And the top spotlight is Be Good at Being Bad. Mm-hmm. And it's um, 14 books reveal the secrets of tricksters and con men. And so there's Boardwalk Empire uh, Thomas Gifford's The Man from Lisbon. There's The Art Forger by B.A. Shapiro, which came out last year. Um, ben Mesrick's Ugly Americans. He writes about schemers and uh, get-rich-quick types of people. Um, Eleanor Lippman, The Art of Betrayal. There's stuff about spies. There's uh, David Petruja's book, Rothstein, about the fixing of the 1919 <laughs> World Series. Right. Like, all sorts of like the Thomas Crown Affair would fit in here, you know, all sorts of great stuff. And that's just one example. Every yeah. week there's another one. And so you can, I, I have found that when I scroll through just 
sort of absentmindedly looking, I'm constantly coming across books and covers that have been on my radar at some point, but that I just haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, so the friction to try is completely removed. It's right there. You can download, I mean, assuming you have a internet connection, I should say that. It's not like if you're on a plane or something without a Wi-Fi, you can do it right there. But there's plenty of content, so it's not just a pretty app that can't do any, I I don't know about you, but I've downloaded a lot of apps that are like really nice, but then there's nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just sort of a, a pretty wrapper. Um, you know, this reminds me of something weird. Uh, I, here we go. Um, so, you know, McRib sandwiches at McDonald's <laughs> uh-huh. and they, they like look like ribs. You know, do they? That's just, do they? Well, they have like the little like faux, faux bones sticking out. I've never to, been like face to face with yeah, a Yeah, it rib. looks like if you like squint your eyes, it kind of looks like a slab of ribs, but it's just pressed meat that's like pressed into a shape. <laughs> so like the con- like the actual stuff sucks, but it's like it's supposed to fool you into thinking it's great. That's not <laughs> what this is. They got good content and good form. <laughs> that was a really long way of getting there. Yeah, I got around there. Oyster, it's not a McRib. It's not, yeah. Um, <laughs> McRib for your pleasure. Um <laughs> So that's Oyster. Thank <laughs> you so after much. Dark. That's so much. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. And uh, we're so glad they're sponsoring it because we can totally nerd out and tell you about how much we love it because it's something we use yeah, all the it's time. It's awesome. All right. Let's talk about new books. New books. <laughs> after I stop giggling. <laughs> uh, all right, new books this week. Uh, two really uh, big new releases that are, are pretty different. And then I'm going to put you on the spot for the paperback. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. She could be a spy. Anyway, we'll get to that. She could totally be a spy. Right. Also, this first one. Actually, I believe that all three of these ladies whose books we're talking <laughs> about today could be spies. They probably are. Uh, the first is Living with a Wild God by Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, she's probably most famous for her book Nickel and Dimed, where she went undercover working at minimum wage jobs. And the book was about the realities of trying to do that to support yourself. Like if you worked 40 hours a week at Walmart, what the reality was for buying food and for paying for rent. Um, And she went undercover in several different kinds of jobs. I think one of them, she was also a maid. Um, She's known as a you know, a science writer and a reporter, and she's trained as a scientist. But this new book um, is about her lifelong search, uh, sort of she's in her 70s, I believe now, um, that search that we all undertake for Uh, meaning in our lives, understanding why we are here and what it is that sort of governs the nature of the world and uh, just gives our lives meaning. I'm not being very eloquent about Mm. this, but um, it's basically she grew up in an atheist family. She calls herself a fourth generation atheist, but had from the times that she was 13 to when she was about 17, um, you can call them mystical experiences. She calls them an altered state of consciousness, but sort of like falling into a state of wonder at something that was before her and wanting to understand that, but not she's not willing uh, to ascribe that to God or a higher power. Um, and she goes into detail. I'm about halfway through the book now. Um, I just love her. I couldn't resist. Mm. Um, she talks about sort of her family's background and why it was that as a teenager, she resisted um, the answer that she was given by everyone else, which was God. And she said that she found that to be a non-answer. Um, so the book delves back into this journal that she kept when she was that age, but now she has the perspective of a woman who's closer to the end of her life, um, writing about that search um, for meaning and how she comes to have an understanding of what her life means and why she believes that we are here while also sort of developing her identity as an atheist, as a person who doesn't believe in God. Um, And it's 
very contemplative and quiet. I think it's really, she's very candid. Um, and she talks about there, there are many reasons that she might have had these mystical experiences um, that have nothing to do, she thinks, with anything magical or supernatural. Um, she's pretty honest about maybe some of the things that were wrong with her family life or that were wrong or unhealthy with herself as a teenager. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I haven't read anything quite like it. And it's much headier than her other books. But um, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that rings your bells. <laughs> then mm-hmm. This is for you. Uh, if Nickel and Dimed was the only Barbara Ehrenreich that you're interested in, then maybe not. But it's I have found it to be really fascinating. And if nothing else, it gives rise to sort of thinking about how you conceptualize that stuff in your own life. Uh, that the, reminds me real quick. Just, yeah. just I thought I'd mention that um, last week you mentioned that the empathy exams was out new. And it's mm-hmm number 11 on the New York Times trade paperback list Which, this week like, for a book of essays is insane. That's a paperback original. Right. Paperback from, from Grey Wolf. Right. From Grey Wolf Press, which is a not-for-profit publisher. We're awesome, but they're not, you know, one right. of the powerhouses. So yeah, they're a, incredible, but... And we said last time, it's it's got huge review, like amazing mm-hmm. reviews. Yeah. And still, we've still we're still seeing them. Um, across people who talk about books. She's going to win awards, I'm calling it. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing... So anyway, I guess that's just a way of saying empathy exams, be on the lookout for it. It's really doing something. Yes, sorry, yeah, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, well, no, actually, okay. I did mean to interrupt, but I'm sorry for it. <laughs> just do it. That's yeah, fine. Right. Uh, I think it fits, too. Like it, This being a non... Barbara Ehrenreich's Living with the Wild God is nonfiction. It reads like a long essay, um, not totally memoirish. Um Actually, it would be really nicely paired with the empathy exams. Yeah, that's kind of what made me think of it. Yeah, somebody do that. See, you weren't interrupting, Jeff. You were complimenting. It's, I was, we're uh, it's we're going together additive. here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the other big new book this week is The Word Exchange by Alina Graydon. Uh, it's a debut novel. It's cyberpunk, which I have finally figured out what that means. <laughs> so I can't get my Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I'm not nearly cool enough to have known what cyberpunk was like when it was in its heyday if it mm-hmm. had a heyday but now i think i kind of understand uh the the main character of the it's set in a future new york and the main character of the book uh, is working at the dictionary i can't remember you know what its name is in the story but think like if merriam webster had giant offices in dystopian future mm-hmm. new york um her father is a really big fancy higher up there and he has gone missing, and they believe that he has gone missing into the dictionary. Uh, As one does. Right. You know, when you're bored with this old world, mm-hmm. <laughs> just dive into the digital Merriam-Webster. Um, and so there's a bit of a mystery there. There's a, It's like a techno-thriller thing uh, everybody carries around. What, what are basically phones, but they call them memes. And your phone uh, knows what you are talking about. And so if you get stuck, like, in a conversation trying to come up with a word, you get that tip of your tongue thing, your phone is listening and suggests the <laughs> word for you uh, and like pops up the meaning of words on screen that you don't know. Um, so there's also this question of whether the dictionary itself is becoming irrelevant in this future world and what that means for language. It's a lot of like what technology means for the future of language. And this one leans a little, for my taste, it leans a little too close to the like, technology is destroying everything Mm -hmm. line, but it's a really fun story. And I think I'm in the minority there. Um, I've read a ton of positive reviews and a bunch of the folks at Book Riot have loved it. And uh, if the tech cyberpunk dystopian thing rings your bells, I think you're probably really going to like it. The notable paperback this week, um, it's a big one. 
uh, not mm-hmm. in length, but a significant work. Um, Behind the Beautiful Ever- Forevers by Catherine Boo, I think is how you say that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. And it is an amazing book. Um, she spent, I think, a year and a half living in this um, basically makeshift community squatters in India, Mumbai. Um, it's right next to a huge luxury hotel development. Oh, wow. Um, and that thing that those of us in the West, I think a lot, of, maybe I'll just speak for me, find so fascinating about India is the proximity of abject poverty to extreme wealth. Um, and that's one thing she's interested in. And she lives with them and um, chronicles their aspirations and their problems, um, their pain, their suffering, and their hope all in, in, in one. It's an amazing book. It's difficult to read at times, uh, but, you know, it's it, it's one of those experiences that's better than traveling because she will go and do things that you won't go and do um, for a length of time. You won't go and do them. Um, the part that's the most poignant and difficult to live with is that these people that live in this abject poverty have very little opportunity to, to move up and yet they see it around them. Like it's mm-hmm. almost, it's like, it's like on, being on the other side of the aquarium uh, to some degree. It seems so close and yet so impenetrable. Um, and that's the part that's, that's, that, I, that I always remember. It's been in hardback for a while, so that tells you something about how well it's done. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's only now, two years later. Didn't uh, she win the Pulitzer for it? What did I say? I think I did say that. She won the Pulitzer okay. for it. Um, this is her first book. She won the MacArthur Genius Award in 2002 uh, for her journalism. Um, wrote some really fascinating pieces uh, for The New Yorker. One called, I think, The Marriage Cure, if I remember correctly, um, in that she did an investigation of a state-sponsored program in Oklahoma for people to get and stay married as a way of curing or, you know, addressing their poverty. Because oh. it's long been thought that marriage um, and uh, was a way out of poverty for a lot of people. For for reasons that make a certain degree of sense, you can... Correlation, There's yeah. correlation. But also, you know, the logic, the premises of the apparently fallacious argument was you have someone else that can help you do stuff. Um, you mitigate your risk to losing a job or having a health problem because there's another there, there's another person there that's sort of a life preserver. But that turns out <laughs> found not to be. I'm googling um, that tonight. Yeah, you, that's that is that is in your alley for sure. Um, but uh, it's an amazing book, and uh, and I said she could be a spy because apparently she can do anything. So who knows? Who, mm-hmm. who knows? She uh, and Alina Graydon and Barbara Aaron Wright. Yeah, they can uh, follow in the footsteps of uh, Peter Mathis. And while we had a longer show today, but I think we covered a lot here. I think we did some nice work here. I think we helped people. And lots of interesting, fun tech things. Yeah, I love it when so. that happens. Like it was interesting because there are a lot of tech things and then a lot of like hard news about specific titles. And we didn't have to be very cranky. Not very. Like last month, we were cranky more often yeah. than I would have liked. Well, not so a lot of, nice. there weren't a lot of stats this week. Right. Just, we kind of get our hands dirty with that stuff. Uh, from time to time. So a good if, show. if you have, rec- if you need recommendations or want recommendations or would just like to humor us by a f- asking for a fake recommendation for <laughs> graduation, for a mom <laughs> or a dad, for all those Hallmark holidays coming up for the summer, or you just want us to spend some time thinking about your beautiful, unique snowflake self, 
please email us at podcast at bookriot.com and ask us for a recommendation or if we have any other feedback about the show. You can find the show notes for this show. We drop the links in. We'll have links to the new books we talked about and the plethora of uh, tech whiz bangery um, that we talked about this week. That is at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can always rate the show on iTunes. That's super helpful. Helps people find the show. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Rating Ape. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y, quarterly.co slash products. products. If you are interested in the quarterly box, I think I'm running out of steam. Please help me get out of this. (laughs) I was wondering how long you could go there. (laughs) Uh, Our other podcast from Book Riot, the Dear Book Nerd Show, which is run by our wonderful colleague, Rita Mead. It's an advice show about life, love, and literature. We'll have a new episode out this weekend as well. So when you're finished listening to us here, you can go listen to her be uh, witty and clever and address uh, the problems of the reading life that we face. uh, This will be the seventh episode they've been great so far and i think that's it i think thanks that so much to is oyster. our show jeff is gonna go breathe yeah. and think about mcribs thanks so much to oyster oysterbooks.com slash book riot to get your free trial there audible podcast slash audible podcast.com slash book riot get your free tri- we got free trials for you indeed it's like pro bono you get a free trial you get that that's a terrible trial. i gotta get out <laughs> of here can we cut that yeah, yeah, yeah no all right kyle keep it in <laughs> i deserve to keep it in it's horrible. All right. We'll talk yeah, to you guys later. In.